Chapter Six of Miss Philura's Wedding Gown by Florence Morse Kingsley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Miss Malvina Bennett paused in the act of sweeping her front stoop to look about her. Miss Bennett's moments in the open air were few, because she was nearly always bending over her sewing near the draughty little window of the front room upstairs. A damp snow had fallen during the night, clinging wherever it touched so that the world at which Miss Bennet gazed with faded, lacklustre eyes was curiously transformed. Every tree and bush appeared loaded with white blossoms, and a pink sun struggling through a veil of light grey clouds shone faint and marvellous between the snowy branches. "'My,' murmured Miss Bennet, "'it certainly is handsome.' Then she pulled a little knitted shawl closer about her head and shoulders and resumed her sweeping. A pile of unfinished garments awaited her busy needle, and she must not waste time in gazing at the winter miracle. As she was bestowing a final flap upon the broom, preparatory to entering the house, she saw a small figure coming towards her across the vacant lot. The pink sun had climbed higher by now, and the tall jewelled weeds on each side of the narrow deep-trodden path blazed with sudden splendour of blue and scarlet and fiery rose. "'I thought was you, Philura,' said Miss Bennet, as a hurrying figure drew near. "'My eyesight's getting so poor lately I can't hardly see anybody at a distance. "'I want to look over your fashion books, Malvina,' Miss Philura said, "'and see if I can get some ideas.' "'I got all the December magazines,' Miss Bennet told her eagerly. "'Come right in and I'll get them all out for you.' As they went upstairs together, Miss Bennet said, I guess you've heard me speak of my sister-in-law's niece, Genevieve Parsons. Her folks live in Boston. She's a sweet, pretty girl, and a real neat sewer. She's staying with me for a while. She threw open the door of the sewing-room, and Miss Philura saw a young girl seated by the window. Her blonde head drooped over the unfinished garment in her lap. For goodness sake, Genevieve, ejaculated Miss Bennett. You ain't trying to put them milliners fold on that waist of Miss Day's, are you? I wouldn't dare to trust the angel Gabriel with them folds, and Miss Day that fussy in particular. Thus rebuked, the girl meekly yielded the black waist. I thought you said I was to do it. There was a dreary note in her young voice. Miss Philura noticed that the girl's eyelids were slightly reddened, as if from recent tears. But she smiled pleasantly when Miss Bennett made them acquainted. Miss Philura is going to marry the minister, explained Miss Bennett briskly, and she wants to look over the fashion books. The girl glanced at Miss Philura from under her long lashes. There was a naive curiosity and wonderment in her brown eyes. Why, she was asking herself with a kind of youthful arrogance, should anyone so small and faded as Miss Philura care about fashions? And how extraordinary to think she was going to be married. The girl sighed deeply. She was tall and held herself stiffly, as if not quite over her surprise at finding her lovely head so far above her mother's. Here, Jenny, you can sew the hooks and eyes on this waist, said Miss Bennett cheerfully. Or if you're feeling tired, certain, you can go down and feed the hens. There's a plate of scrapings on the kitchen table. The girl went slowly out of the room, her head, with its heavy plaits of pale brown hair, drooped a little to one side. 
Miss Philura looked up from the picture of a preposterously long-limbed lady clad in a bewildering gown of black and purple. I've got some silk in these shades, she said rather vaguely. Then she added abruptly, Is she sick? Who? Genevieve? Oh, no, she ain't sick. But I don't know but what she will be if she keeps worrying. I'm keeping her busy, and that I ought to take her mind off if anything will. Take her mind off? repeated Miss Philura, gazing at the simpering countenance of the lady in the picture, who looked as if she never had any mind to take off or put on. Genevieve's been crossed in love, said Miss Bennet in a sibilant whisper. I don't mind telling you, Philura, but don't for goodness sake let anybody else know. She's related to the Peabody's and the Winthrop's on her pa's side. He's been dead since she was little. But I can tell you, she's just as proud as anybody. And when his folks objected, why, she made up her mind she wouldn't marry him. Not if he was a duke and asking her on his bended knee. So she come here to me. Miss Bennet paused to listen, her head on one side. He don't know where she is, she finished triumphantly. I tell you, she's got spunk. Then the two looked at each other guiltily at the sound of her light step on the stair. Now this here style would be real becoming to you, Philura, Miss Bennett was saying when Genevieve came in. And it's so narrow and skimpy, it don't take no goods to speak of. Oh, I've got plenty of goods, Miss Philura said. But she couldn't for the life of her help a compassionate glance in the direction of the girl. I've got a real stylish skirt pattern, pursued the dressmaker. You can take it just as well as not. Certain taint no work at all. I'll pin it on to you and see how much it'll want taken in. Oh, thank you, Malvina, Miss Philura said gratefully. But she was thinking with almost painful sympathy of the tall, pale girl who by this time was sewing hooks and eyes down the back of a maroon-coloured waist of ample proportions. Don't put more than half an inch apart, Jenny, cautioned Miss Bennett with her mouth full of pins. That's Miss Buckthorn's waist, and she's so fleshy you'd have to be extra careful with plackets and openings of all sorts. For all that she's so holy, she's awful hard to suit. I most died over the set of that waist. She wanted to look slim like the picture. Miss Buckthorn, I says, the Lord didn't make you up that way. And she told me I wasn't to take the name of the Lord my God in vain. We're frail children of dust, she says, reproving like. Frail, I says, and I teehed right out. And Genevieve, she laughed too. But Miss Buckthorn said she'd pray for me. She always says that when she wants to set down hard on anybody. And I will say it takes a tuck right out of me every time. There's something about the idea goes against the grain. And yet I don't suppose it would do any real harm. Miss Bennett stood up to observe Miss Fuliora's small person invested with the brown paper pattern. There, she exclaimed. That would be real pretty on you. If you was only a mite taller now... But as I told Miss Buckthorn, we can't be thinking to change one cubit. Now I'll just trace off that pattern. Won't take a minute. When the two women went downstairs, Genevieve Parsons let two big tears splash on the front of Miss Buckthorn's maroon-coloured waist. Her young heart was in a tumult of rebellion against the dull pattern of her life. How she hated the jargon of the dressmaking shop. 
pins, pipings, patterns and plackets, the everlasting taking in and letting out, the painful strivings after beauty by the hopelessly ugly, the small, mean economies, the endless monotony of the narrow treadmill between the sewing machine and the chair by the window. Her mother, an excellent but wholly unimaginative person, had chosen Genevieve's career for her when she was a little girl sewing dolls' frocks. She was to take a course in dressmaking when she had graduated from the high school. They were poor, and the girl had always thought of herself as earning money. She had even looked forward to the time when she could have a shop of her own. This had been the pinnacle of Mrs. Parsons' ambition for her, and the girl had accepted it without question. Then she had met him, and everything was changed. All had been just as her mother had planned it up to that point. Genevieve had graduated in a white muslin gown of her own making. Then she had gone to the art school and learned dressmaking in a course of twenty lessons. After that, she sewed for Miss Popham, who sometimes went out by the day with an assistant to make gowns for people who imported their best things from Paris. This was an exceptional opportunity Miss Popham impressed upon the girl, of whom she demanded the maximum of work at the minimum of wages. But Genevieve was satisfied. In these great dull houses, one generally worked in the third-storey back room and ate a meagre lunch brought up on a tray by a supercilious maid, but there were occasional glimpses to be had of the unknown world, snatches of music, pits of conversation. Even the fittings conducted by Miss Popham in the state bedroom below stairs, where Genevieve was sometimes called to assist, even on these occasions when she played the part of an animated pincushion, there was food for the imagination. It was a rainy night in December when the psychological instant had arrived, quite unexpectedly. Only the girl never referred to it as psychological. She only thought of it as the first time I saw him. Miss Popham had just completed a masterly copy of a Paris gown, at a fifth of its cost, and was crawling about on the floor on her hands and knees, intent on the hang of the skirt on the majestic person of her employer. Genevieve was handing pins as usual when the door opened and a young man came in. He had apparently just arrived from somewhere, for he carried a suitcase and umbrella. "'Hello, mother,' he said with a boyish eagerness. Then he planted a kiss on the lady's plump, florid cheek. "'Oh, my dear!' protested the matron. "'Don't you see I'm having a fitting?' "'You're always having something,' rumbled the boy. "'Last time I came home it was a reception, and the time before that... "'You had best dress for dinner,' his mother interrupted coldly. "'And pray give Rogers your bag when you come in.' The intruder turned, his ruddy good looks clouded by a frown. He muttered something under his breath, and then... Genevieve Parsons drew a sharp breath, and then it just happened that he glanced about the room and chanced to see her. It was the merest chance, of course, but it was strangely like the meeting of old friends. She was sure she didn't know how it came about, but in less than a month he had managed to convince Genevieve's mother that he was a really nice young man. Beyond that, Mrs. Parsons, for one, was never known to go. He drank tea with them on Sunday nights and praised Mrs. Parsons' biscuit and raspberry jam, which he said was the best he ever ate. 
Once he invited Genevieve to go with him to a football game. She wore her prettiest clothes, which by this time had taken on an air quite Parisienne, carried a Harvard flag, and was as happy as a girl may be at the great spectacle of youth. The crowds, the shouting, and the victory for the crimson warmed her somewhat cold and timid beauty into a loveliness so striking that numbers of his college friends crowded about, eager to be introduced to the pretty Boston girl. That night he told her that he loved her, quite simply and boyishly, and she had allowed him to kiss her. He would graduate in June, he said, and they would be married directly afterwards. Well, it was November now, and they were parted, for ever, she told herself. It was his mother, as any one but a little goose like Genevieve might have expected. She actually came to see Genevieve in her limousine, attended by a footman in buttons, and wearing one of Miss Popham's French gowns. The Parsons lived in a very small, very shabby little house, one of a long row of shabby little houses, all drearily alike, and very far removed from Beacon Street. It was quite the proper environment for the masses, since they were to be found there in such numbers. But it had not up to the present moment occurred to Genevieve Parsons that she was part of that great general division of humanity. His mother was very kind. She did not, as she might have done, reproach Genevieve. There was something so piteous, so despairing in the young face, that even the lady in the Popham French gown was touched by it. But she made her understand how impossible, how utterly, entirely, absurdly impossible it all was, she spoke of her son as that foolish boy and reproached herself for neglecting him. When Mrs. Parsons had attempted to interfere with strident protest to the effect that she guessed her Genevieve was just as good as anybody else, adding further relevant information pertaining to the Peabody and Winthrop connection, the great lady had merely stared at her through her lorgnette with a perfectly appropriate remark which appeared to cut the interview off short like a length of ribbon under a pair of sharp scissors. Thereupon she had swept out to her limousine. The door had been neatly shut by the footman in buttons, and the whole shining vision had disappeared in a cloud of East Boston dust which hung dispiritedly in the air before settling on the grimy little houses. She saw him once more to say good-bye. He had protested, hotly, vainly, He'd be of age in a month. He'd marry whom he chose. His mother had no right, not a vestige of a right, to spoil his happiness. What did Genevieve care what anyone said, as long as he loved her? But the Peabody and Winthrop pride was alive and dominant in this humble descendant. It breaks my heart, she had sobbed, but I promised your mother that I wouldn't. You promised my mother, he cried. But you promised me first. In the end, he'd gone away, only to come again the next day and the next. Then, in despair, the girl had sworn her mother to secrecy and taken flight to Malvina Bennett's upper front room, where it appeared she must remain for uncounted years, sewing on hooks and eyes and learning to lay milliner's folds. End of chapter 6